0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, delicious, dexterous dukes and duchesses of the digital den. Welcome to Good Job Brain, your weekly quiz show and offbeat trivia podcast. This is episode 228, and of course, I'm your humble host, Karen, and we are your verifiably va-va-voom vixens, voracious for vocabulary and vuvuzelas.
2: <laughs> I'm Colin. I'm Dana. And I'm Chris.
1: Without further ado, let's jump into our first general trivia segment, Pop Quiz Hotshot. Here, I have a random trivia pursuit card. You guys have your barnyard buzzers. And let's answer some questions. Here we go. Blue Edge for Geography. In 1978, which publishing magnate held a fundraiser to save the then crumbling Hollywood sign?
3: 78. Oh, Chris. William Randolph Hearst.
1: Incorrect.
3: Ah, it's the only publishing Whoa, that magnate. That was a good guess.
1: Think about the, the West Coast. Uh, the West Coast. Colin.
2: Oh. Hugh Hefner.
1: Correct. Go. It is Hugh Hefner. Mm. Pink Wedge. Which African American actor won the Oscar for Best Actor in two thousand and two? A feat that hadn't occurred since Sidney Poitier won in nineteen sixty three.
2: Colin, I believe that was uh, Denzel, right? Denzel. Yeah. What movie? Uh, Denzel Washington, two thousand two. Was it for uh, uh Philadelphia? It was was it 19th. Was
1: it the cop one? Training Day. Mm, Training yeah. Day. Yeah. Yellow Wedge. Which company acquired Yahoo in 2016 for close to $5 billion? <laughs>
3: Chris. Was this Yahoo? Was this America Online? Incorrect. No, no what Yahoo?
1: Dana. Was it Microsoft? Incorrect. No. Colin.
2: Was it, AT&- Was it AT&T? It was Verizon. Ah. Verizon. Okay. I knew it was one of those. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Purple Wedge, who wrote the
1: autobiography of Alice B. Toklas? The hint is it is not oh. Alice B. Toklas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Colin.
2: Uh, I think that was uh, Gertrude Stein, yes.
1: Correct. Gertrude nice. Stein. Green Wedge for science and nature. <laughs> Ew. Feline <laughs> tapeworms can be spread to humans, true or false? <laughs> Uh, well, well thumbs up for true thumbs down for false <laughs> true 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 colin dana chris it is true yeah
3: gross uh, you could okay. take a tapeworm and put it in a human
1: <laughs> you, you can take yeah. any worm and put it in a human. <laughs> any worm in a human <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> last question orange wedge in which city does the oh god, we have so many tennis questions. All right, Colin, you're not allowed to answer. This is for All Dana right. and Chris. Okay. This is another tennis question. <laughs> uh in which city does the first of the four Grand Slam tennis tournaments take place each January? Wow. So wow. which one? Which of the opens? Dana.
4: Is it Sydney? because it's summer in january mm. no okay
1: oh you are right that it's australia Chris? oh it is
3: australia but it's it not is City? australia yeah um canberra mm-hmm.
1: there's the capital of australia but that melbourne. is incorrect melbourne melbourne yeah. colin can you name what the four tennis matches are in order Starting with
2: January. All right. I mean, when we got... And so let's just list them. All right. Okay. So this will help me think out loud here. All right. So okay. we, got, we got Australian Open in Melbourne. We have Wimbledon in, of course, London um, or thereabouts. Uh, we've got the US Open, which is in Flushing uh, in Queens, New York. And then we've got the French Open in Paris or thereabouts. So, man. Okay. I feel like the US Open is the last one. So Correct. let's see, what are the other ones? Okay, all right. So, so the we middle got the ones, ends. I think it's going to be Australian, French, Wimbledon, U.S. Open. That's You got it. Pick. All right. Yeah, okay.
1: Nice. Very impressive. Oh, good job, guys. Uh, so I have an amazing purple Patreon patron pledge fact. Justin from Colorado Springs. He says, I love hot air balloons. I have crewed for pilots at the Albuquerque Balloon Festival. Oh. Ah. So here is his fact story. Justin says, when brothers Montgolfier were tweaking their hot air balloon design in 18th century France, they started doing test flights after launching successful unmanned flights. Of course, naturally, the next step was to launch animals. So they put a sheep, a rooster, and a duck into a higher <laughs> balloon and set it to the skies. The balloon rose to as high as like 600 meters, and it traveled for like two miles uh, and landed safely in a field. And then the animals then were inspected by a physician to make sure that they're all okay. You know, because they haven't sent a person up there, so they got to make sure, you know. Sure, that sure. yeah, the effects yeah. Are, are okay. And the doctor determined that they were alive and well. And so the three animals became pioneers of hot air balloon flight and paved (laughs) the way for successful human flights of the future. For their brave efforts, the three animals were hailed as heroes and got to spend their remaining days at the menagerie in Versailles. Oh, wow. wow.
2: That is pretty cool. Like, they have no idea what was going on. No, (laughs) no. It was a
4: scary day, and then we (laughs) moved somewhere nice. It was cold.
2: Uh, But, like, in all seriousness, though, that means that sheep was probably... The the highest that a mammal had ever been off the ground at that point at that right, time? in in recorded history.
3: It was the highest a mammal had ever been off the ground and then lived, probably. Yeah, so. for sure. It's <laughs> like we had catapults. <laughs>
2: or
4: birds picking up <laughs> mice or something mm, like that.
3: Fair, no. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Yep, but- yep,
1: yep, yep. I like these edge cases. All right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> the sheep was
1: the edge case.
2: <laughs> I love Chris's murder mystery. <laughs> the sheep was the edge, edge case. case.
1: <laughs> I can imagine the cover already in those James Patterson with a long serif font. And it's like the uh, shadow of a sheep. And yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, like yeah, yeah, through a door or something. Yeah, through a door. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a door. Red embossed letters. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Foil, little foil effect. Ah, uh, sheep was the edge case.
1: Yeah. All right. Thank you, Justin, from Colorado Springs for your wonderful hot air balloon fact. This week's episode, Colin, you chose the theme.
2: I did. Uh, today's episode, lock and key. I give you guys a little behind the scenes here, dear listeners. You know we uh, we try and generate these topics at least a few weeks before we sit down to record here. So we have we have a little you know group uh, Google Doc going where we sort of brainstorm the topics and sort of subtopics ideas, and then we sort of flesh it out from there. Lock and key just came to me, and just almost in a flash, and I spilled out like twelve different subtopics that we could talk about. You know anything from security to literal locks and keys, vaults, you name it. I thought that would be a fun topic for us. Um, I'm looking forward to what you guys all talked about here, too.
1: Well, this week is a terrible topic for me because I lose my keys all the time. This week, it's Lock and Key!
2: So I have put together for you guys a grab bag quiz. I will start you guys off with a kid joke, dad joke. What kind of key do you use to open a haunted house?
3: Skeleton. answer, of course, a, ske- uh, skeleton. a skeleton, skeleton key. Oh, a skeleton
2: okay,
4: okay. A ghost key.
2: A ghost right. key. Yeah.
4: No, a bookie. A,
2: key. Right. a <laughs> Grab you guys, barnyard buzzers here. Barnyard buzzers, get them up, get them ready. Why okay. is it called a skeleton key? What? Why? Oh. oh, Dana.
4: Is it because it's um, the least amount of key information you can have on the key? So it's like missing parts of it in order to sneak through. It's like a bone almost.
2: That's exactly it's missing the right. little ridges on it. What? Yeah. That's exactly oh. right. Yeah, it's not. It is not as I certainly did until Made you know, out of- just a few days ago, uh, as a lot of kids do. It's not an allusion to it looking like a skeleton or a bone per se. It is an allusion to the fact that it is stripped down to the absolute bare minimum of what it needs to do its job. So let's talk oh. about what a skeleton key is. What does is, what is a skeleton, skeleton key do? What, what, is, what is the purpose of a skeleton key?
3: If you have a house um, where, you know, have various different locks on the doors, the skeleton key should be able to open all of those.
2: It is a specific old type of lock, all right? So the, the most modern locks that we have, like in your house today, almost, there's there's almost guaranteed that you have in your house a, a pin and tumbler cylinder style lock. Just, it's kind yeah. of what most of us think of when we think of a key, a lock and key, just a little ridge, you know, outline, kind of looks like little mountains on the side there. So in contrast to that, another very old, old, old style of lock is called a warded lock or a warded padlock and a, and a warded key, a lock and key. It, it looks very much like a long rod with maybe kind of, you know, rectangular little pieces on the oh. end. You stick it in and kind of click it around. It was basically a rotary design. And inside the lock, if you were to take the cover off, you would see it almost looks like sections of a maze. Okay. There are little wow. like walls, the wards and the indentations or sort of the outline of the uh, Key bits, <laughs> the business end of the key, are designed to pass <laughs> around those walls and slots and rotate to open the lock. So if they weren't the notches weren't in the right shape, it wouldn't turn. But really, underneath it all, all you had to do was just turn kind of the very last little bit of it. So a skeleton <laughs> yeah. key was a key where the end of it, the shape of it that went in and touched the lock mechanism, had all of the parts missing where the wards would be, except for the one actual slot that that did the work and turned. And the that's lock enough
1: open. to rotate the thing. That's right. Into... Enough to
2: rotate free yeah. and clear. That's right. And yeah, exactly. As you know, both Dana and Chris were saying it. It's, it's, it's a key that has just the absolute minimal information to sort of do its job. It's a skeleton. It's been pared down. I thought it was made a... from
1: a bone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: a good guess. All right. Moving right along. Get your buzzers ready. <clears throat> the 1983 AMC Renault Alliance was the first mainstream car available with what as a factory option? Ooh. What year? 1983. Karen with a guess. Is it like
1: fingerprint lock?
3: Whoa. Uh, Chris with the guess. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to say it's keyless ignition. That is a keyless
2: entry. Oh. Keyless entry. I think you guys were dancing around it there. Yeah, that's right. Earlier than I thought. I, I kind of, in my mind, had this as like a 90s thing when I kind of went down chasing this one down. Yeah, according yeah. Uh, to the research I found, yeah, sort of the first... Mass produced, commercially available. Yeah, 83, uh, the Renault and then the AMC, American Motor Cars kind of alliance there. And It was a fairly budget car. I mean, you go back and look at this car, and it's you know very nondescript. It's not like a luxury car by any means, but sounds like it was infrared at
3: first as opposed to a radio signal, <laughs> so you sure. really kind of had yeah, to be yeah.
2: pointing it at the car, you know, it's like you know, like a so like TV remote, point, yeah. I guess. Like, a, yeah, so that you used know. to
3: be a video, you know, the earliest uh, you know, video game wireless video game controllers were infrared, so it's like you had to point them at a receiver and of totally. course what everybody does with their video game controllers is they always keep them oriented exactly p- facing the TV right so yeah. uh, no problem yeah. there.
2: I had a pair I remember real early on my first pair of wireless headphones way 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 long ago was IR based and it was it was so it was so bad it was, it was like a $19 set of IR headphones and I literally had to like I couldn't turn my head <laughs> yes. more than like maybe a 15 degree angle of arc and or the sound would cut out. I was like, this this is Go try to convince myself it's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> you just
1: can't move your head. In 1983, also
2: 1983, a big year for this quiz. Yeah, we were one. 1983, the KBL Corporation of Massachusetts reached an agreement with DC Comics regarding the use of what trade name?
4: Huh? All right, the
3: KBL Corporation reached an agreement with DC Comics. Some of a trade DC name. Comics, it's gotta League. be. Somebody if you have know.
2: ever been to downtown San Francisco, downtown mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. downtown almost any major city, I, I guarantee you have seen many of this company's uh, inventions, products mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all around okay. you.
1: What was, what was that do with
3: DC? I think, okay, I think this has to do with maybe armored cars. Um,
2: Interesting.
3: Oh! So, mm, what would that mm, be in a comic? That Tumblr. Car, trade no,
2: name? No. I'm guessing that none of you know or live with uh, a bike messenger. Yeah. Oh, man. Dana's got to guess. People in their cars right now are screaming at their radios. The answer. Yeah. <laughs> Dana's well, got to guess. I don't
4: think this is going to be right.
2: They're going to be so disappointed. Is it a, a bike lock? It is the yeah, kryptonite. You, uh, Bike lock.
3: Oh, it is the
2: It is the kryptonite bike lock. Yeah, now let let me explain it to you in case you've never seen one. They are virtually Ah. ubiquitous in any big city these days. It is the U-shaped lock with a crossbar at the end. You run it through the frame. You attach it to whatever you want. And uh, the illusion, of course, of the name is that it is super strong, super tough, super hard to get into. Early 70s, invented by a guy named Stan Kaplan. He, you know, his goal was basically to make an unbreakable (laughs) bike lock. He just went ahead and called his product the Kryptonite bike lock. Never really got hassled by DC Comics about it. Built up enough of a following that he was, you know, making a good amount of money by this before it ever really became an issue. I don't think this would happen today. I just, I feel like, you know, it's certainly not today's modern DC Comics. Cease and desist at the get-go. Oh, yeah. Right away. Right away. Right away. In 1983. Um, after, you know, some back and forth, for sure. I mean, they they ended up on uh, DC's radar. Uh, DC and, and you know, Stan Kaplan and his company, they reached an agreement, really, which amazes me that they allowed him, them, to use the kryptonite name for their bike lock, uh, provided that they never, ever, ever use any... Superman, Superboy, Supergirl, any of the Superman Mm -hmm. characters. They never used the word super. Mm. Okay, well, we'll stick with the Kryptonite company here. I hope this one goes well. Follow-up question. In 2004, the Kryptonite company was prompted to change their locking mechanism when it was discovered you could open a standard Kryptonite lock (gasps) using what common item?
1: I heard about this. Is Is it like a can of compressed air?
2: Oh, no, 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 not a can of Ooh. compressed air. An even more common item, something oh. that you might even have in your backpack or on your desk or in your hmm. pocket. They discovered that using a Bic pen, the exact right diameter and radius <laughs> to fit into the cylinder lock mechanism that Kryptonite had. And yeah. despite all of this vaunted you know, security <laughs> and how tough the lock was and the unbreakable steel and all that, you could literally jam a Bic pen tube in there, wriggle it around without too much finesse, to be honest with you, and open the lock. And it would just, no it would way. get the little, yeah, I.
4: It's a skeleton key made out
2: of a pen. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I saw this online and I was like, no way, I'm gonna go home. I've got like two or three kryptonite locks at home. I went home, popped off the end of a big pen. <gasps> It did. It just it opened. To, I just it took me oh, no. like twenty seconds to open this this lock. I couldn't. I really couldn't believe it. So they were obviously, I mean, you know, embarrassed by this. <laughs> In 1924, this company was granted a patent for its iconic stacked steel plate style padlock, revolutionized the market. Master Lock. Yeah, that's right, Master Lock. Yeah, just that little, you know, the little stacked up little steel plate style looks like a little stack of pancakes made out of metal. That was a, a real revolution in the in the consumer padlock industry. It's founded by uh, Harry Soref. He was a, a Russian immigrant. <laughs> Harry
1: Master Lock. Harry Master <laughs>
2: oh, Before it was Master Lock, he had a company called Master Key, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Harry Soref. Yeah, a a a, a Russian immigrant. By all accounts, an absolute grinder. Just uh, he came, he moved to the U.S. and just got to work. Man taught himself uh, the locksmith trade. He was a traveling locksmith in the late 19 teens. He founded a company called Master Key, and Master Key did pretty much what the name implies: is they manufactured and sold a set of uh, five keys that could open just one of the keys could open just about any mass produced oh, wow. mass padlock on the market at the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he yep. sold
4: thieves tools.
2: Well, so look, Dana, <laughs> it, it was every kind of bio I read about uh, Harry sort of here online says that, yeah, law enforcement was not necessarily that happy with him. They felt like he was selling tools to, you know, to burglars and thieves. But, you know, his position, I think, you know, fairly or not was, look, I'm not the one making these crappy locks. Like, really, it was, you know, it was just, the state of the industry he kind of decided though i think at one point maybe i'll make my fortune on the other end of this economy yeah yeah. Yeah.
1: now that i've sold you guys tools to break open, now let me sell the other side locks right, to prevent right.
2: these tools. So his idea was to to change how locks were made at the time. So at the time, you could get a good padlock. It was just very expensive because it was just a solid chunk of metal that had been, you know, drilled and tooled out to, oh. to accept the lock mechanism. And you know, the the lock mechanism itself in all of these locks is not particularly complicated or secret or anything like that. It's, it's protecting it. Like that's, that's the core of having a good lock is protecting the lock mechanism. So most people who didn't want to shell out for an expensive padlock uh, would buy a cheaper lock, which was a perfectly fine mechanism, but it was just encased in a rather cheap metal sheet Mm -hmm. basically. And it didn't matter how good the mechanism was. If you could just bash the hell out of it with a rock or a hammer and just, yeah, crack it open. So Harry Soref's idea was, okay, instead of the expense of, you know, casting and drilling something out of solid metal, what if we had lots of little steel plates and just stacked them up together and riveted them together and had them, each one was carved out to have the space for the mechanism and it was much cheaper to produce. Very strong, very durable. I mean, as I say, this was 1924. You can go to the store today and buy these little stacked steel plates, you know, style locks. It's a great, great, great design. Heavy duty. Master Lock eventually became extremely, extremely popular. Of course, for your high school locker, the little combination. Oh, Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. That's a recurring dream in high school. (laughs) Forgetting the combination, Forgetting forgetting it. It's like, oh, what's the combination of this?
2: True or false? In most states it is illegal to own a lock picking set.
0: Oh. Wait.
2: Uh, Chris.
3: False. I feel like you have to be able to own a lock picking set to, you know, to pick locks. you if you need to. <laughs> and there's, I mean, there's literally there's people you can hire. No, I
4: think it's true that you can't have it like you can get in trouble if you're caught with a lock p- lockpicking set
2: Uh, in the strictest, strictest answer. True, false. The answer is false to my question. False. In most states, it is, in fact, legal to own a lockpicking set outright. There are a handful of states where it is illegal or it gets more complicated. And here's where it gets complicated. And I'll use our own great state of California as an example. We're, we're oh. a very classic, typical example of the laws here. Uh, It is perfectly legal to own a lock picking set on its own. It is not legal if you are in possession of a lock picking set in commission of a crime or with intent to commit a crime.
3: Okay, okay.
2: If I, you know, run into you on the street and you're just carrying a lock picking set in your backpack, you know, that's fine. If I catch you breaking into the front door of my building and you've got a lock picking set in your backpack, that is now a separate, uh, a criminal charge there.
3: Right, right. right. Okay, Um, okay,
2: I see. I found an entry here. This is the uh, California penal code here I'm looking at. Penal code, title 13, chapter three. Here's a great term for you guys. Chapter three, burglarious and larcenous instruments and deadly weapons.
3: I really like hilarious. I like burglarious. burglarious. Yeah, it's
2: not hilarious. It's burglarious. burglarious. <laughs> it's burglarious. Yeah. Listen to this. All right, so this is uh, this is uh, 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 section here. What do we got? Uh, this is four six six. <clears throat> Every person having upon him or her in his or her possession a picklock crow key bit crowbar screwdriver vice grip pliers water what? pump pliers slide hammer slim jim tension bar, lock pick gun, tubular lock pick, bump key, floor safe door puller, master key, ceramic or porcelain spark plug chips or pieces, or other instrument or tool with intent feloniously to break or enter into any building to define. That is what constitutes a burglarious uh, or larcenous instrument or tool. Uh, yeah. And that is a misdemeanor. Yeah.
1: They sound like skateboarding tricks. Like It in, does. Right. The skater. tubular
2: lock pick, the bump key, the floor safe door puller. <laughs> bump, bump key. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Did you guys see that Tony Hawk? Yeah, he was the first one to pull off a floor safe door puller in competition. <laughs> <Right>.
0: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it was it was hilarious. Like
2: yeah. <laughs> um, all right, I'll close you out here with the last one. Why is the vault in a bank called a vault? Why is it called Jeez. the vault? The big room where you walk in, keep all the valuable stuff. Thick doors. Why is it called a vault?
1: Okay. Well, we have we have a gymnastics event. Right. Vault, vault. Well, there's also pole vault.
3: So in the sense of jumping, right? Hmm. 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 You mm-hmm.
1: can't mm-hmm. jump over it. Hmm.
3: <laughs> you can't jump into Ooh. it.
2: It is because uh, historically the early the early vaults were down in the basement or underground where there were vaulted ceilings. It was just how oh, the multi level buildings okay. were constructed, and oh. it was the safest place of the building. Yeah, so it kind of just sort mm-hmm. of stuck with the name of the room, mm-hmm. even is even if it isn't literally with vaulted ceilings or oh, uh, down underground anymore. That makes sense. Uh, even though it kind of okay. still is for a lot of places. Uh, you guys know Underwriter Labs, kind of the the institute that does a lot of uh, testing of safety testing and fireproofing, and you know all kinds of okay. things the UL
4: thing. symbol Yeah, the I
2: UL think. symbol. That's right. That's right. You mm-hmm. see on so many consumer products, UL Underwriter Labs. They certify a whole just huge range oh. of, you know, codes and and uh, performance standards for almost everything. One of the things that they provide certification for is vault specifications in the US at least. And they grade the vaults on how long it would take to break into. Oh, it's not, wow. yeah. That's how your vault is graded. Like you might have, you know, a 30 minute grade bake vault. Like if you assume like a dedicated team is trying to break into, burgle your vault, uh, how long, how long can this thing hold them off? And that's how they used to grade them. And Well, I they must
1: have much. like a bunch of experts as their QA Wouldn't team. that be
2: the most fun job, seriously, to be on, what do you do? Well, I'm on, you know, I'm on the vault testing team for Underwriter Labs. I, I break into vaults for a you
1: I'm yeah. a white hat
2: so yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah. exactly okay well good yeah. job guys mm. good job well done
1: all right uh let's take a quick break and we'll be right back
3: You're listening to Good Job Brain. Smooth puzzles. Smart trivia. Good job, brain.
1: And we're back. You're listening to Good Job Brain. And this week we're talking about things that are locked
3: up. Well, speaking of vaults, uh, things that are locked up securely in vaults, uh, when, you know, whenever I think of something like locked up really tightly, as securely as possible, or, you know, certainly us here in the United States, you might think of the expression like, oh, that they've got that locked up tighter than Fort Knox. Um, yes. or or possibly yeah. the expression like, "Whoa, I would I wouldn't do that for all the gold in Fort Knox." Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So yeah, so let me let me ask you, what what is what is Fort Knox? I believe
2: Fort Knox yeah. is where they stored all of our country, like the U.S. government, federal government's gold, and that that was the gold that backed all of our currency, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, until we went off the gold standard.
3: Okay. If you were to define Fort Knox, you would define it as a big building in which a whole lot of gold is stored on behalf of the United States of America.
2: Well, you know, when you say it that way, I guess <laughs> I guess you're really I guess you're making me think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess I would uh-huh. have to say, yeah, where where is it? I don't know. what, I well, guess. what is
3: it? Where yeah. is it? What is Fort Knox? Does anyone want to guess why it's called Fort Knox? It's a
4: military. Uh it's an army uh, base. Uh, fort yeah. Knox yeah. is an
3: army base, a fort, uh just south of Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Fort Knox is a big army base about during the day. There's about twenty five thousand people there, soldiers, civilians Mm. and family members of the soldiers that Mm -mm. are stationed there. The funny thing about Fort Knox is that not in Fort Knox, but right next to Fort Knox, like across the street from Fort Knox (laughs) is a building called the United States Bullion Depository. So, in a sense, we think about all the gold in Fort Knox. There is technically there is no gold in Fort Knox. <laughs> it's across the street. Um, it's across the street. It's actually at the intersection of. Gold Vault Road and Bullion Boulevard. (laughs) That's the street address. Okay.
2: Practically inviting you to come. Come on down. Just we're at the intersection of Gold Vault Road and Bullion
3: Boulevard. Whereas in reality, they absolutely do not want you going there at all. Um, So yeah, in the United States, Bullion Depository, the only thing, it's this building, it looks like a big bank, you know what I mean? Except for it has uh, guard towers on all four corners of it and inside this incredibly secure facility is stored half of the united oh. states holdings of gold oh. half oh. of it uh, there's two other mint there's at, at west point and i believe denver is the other oh. facility where the other other bars of gold are stored. but fort knox has Well over, it really is over half. It has a lot of gold. It is just a storage facility. They don't do any other business out of there. Mm. It is just a facility with a vault full of gold bars and some other things historically, uh, like during, I believe, World War II, they moved the Constitution there. They moved. Ah. They've, they've had other stuff stored there if they ever needed to keep it in storage. And the thing is, it's it's not coastal. It's very far away from like where oh. other landing armies might land. It's in Kentucky. You know what I mean? It's it's mm. even even the location. That's another element of how secure it is. I should say, by the way, even the United States Mint, if you go to the official page of the United States Bullion Depository, even they occasionally call it by the nickname Fort Knox. Like, everybody kind of (laughs) calls it that. Uh It is currently home to 147.3 million ounces of gold and one penny. (laughs)
1: oh is the penny like a really special penny
3: what's the penny oh karen it's it must be a very special penny. Is it
1: the one from UHF,
3: <laughs> the word out movie? That's the one. You're just gonna have to keep thinking about what penny it could possibly be.
2: I mean, I can picture like a one ounce gold coin. Like I, I have, I've held a one ounce gold coin, and there's how many? A hundred and something million of those. Yeah, there's there's
3: fewer of the uh, there's fewer the gold coins you might think because actually a lot of the gold that's at the, the gold bars in Fort Knox. They they were derived from melting down the gold coins, the gold mm, U.S. coins uh, people actually used to use. Now, I'll get to that in just a second. 147.3 million ounces of gold, uprocks. Yeah. Now, the price of gold on the day we're recording this is um, $1,979.20 an ounce. So, and I pray that I did the math right here. That means it is $291,536,160,000 worth of gold in Fortnite. Wow. So why do we have all this gold? Colin kind of alluded to this. This is basically, in this is like in case our currency fails, right? The United States currency used to be on the gold standard, meaning that like it was all based on, we only issued as much currency as we had gold, literal gold. Mm-hmm. To back it up. Now, if that was a gold coin, you were holding the gold, you know? When we got off what was called the gold standard, that basically meant that now all of the money in the United States was worth something just because Mm. because we said it is because we we all just (laughs) we all agree (laughs) that it is (laughs) okay and if anybody were to ever disagree you know that would be extremely bad um so we've got the strategic reserve in case our currency like if like if it does fail we at least have something to kind of to back it up right so the u.s bullion depository nicknamed fort knox uh is is indeed reputed to be the the most secure place in Mm. the world and Mm. i really wanted to like have a, a big discussion with you all about like all the different security systems that are in place <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. at Fort Knox. So here we go. I don't know because
0: <laughs>
3: it's all classified and like there's, yeah, there's yeah. A, we we can yeah. see like there's the building and there's like a <laughs> fence around the building, but it's like, other than that, like if you go to the treasury department website, it says the building is equipped with the latest and most modern protective devices. And the US Mint's website says the actual structure and content of the facility is known by only a few. And mm. no one person knows all the procedures oh, I to love open it. I love the that. vault. There's reports that there are automatic machine guns that fire if a laser is tripped. It's also said that there's landmines in the <laughs> okay. in the ground. So but we don't know, and that in yeah. and of itself makes it more <laughs> secure because you have no idea what you're even up against, right?
1: It's also across the street from like a giant army
3: installation. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. With 25, so if they need any backups,
3: there. like you can get in, but I don't know how you're going to get out. Right. So let's get back to that penny, which yeah, yeah, I know yeah, you've yeah, all yeah. been waiting for. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna tell you just yet, but in the in the US, <laughs> let me here here's a here's a question. <laughs> this is a good trivia question, too. In the United States, if I were to go to the United States Mint and say "one penny, please," and they handed me a nice new 2022 penny, what metal predominantly makes up that penny that you would get this year? What metal is that penny mostly made of? From Mm. this year,
2: I think it is mostly uh,
3: zinc. Yeah, you're a poet, and you didn't know it. I think it is zinc, and you're right. Uh, This has been the case since 1982. Prior to 1982, pennies were made out of mostly copper. Again, a precious metal. It used to be that, you know, a copper penny was about a penny's worth of, you know, ish copper, right? In 1982, the rising price (laughs) of copper led us to switch over to copper-plated zinc. This came about after a different proposed solution in 1973. (gasps) You, You might know I used to live in Japan. And the lowest coin denomination in Japan is one yen. Um, And when you get one of these one yen coins into your hands, it's, you know, their version of a penny. It's something you realize something very, very interesting about this coin. It is very light. And you realize that is because it is made of aluminum. If you, if you carefully place a one-yen coin on the surface of water very carefully, it will not break the surface tension of the water and it will it will float. But if you drop it, in, it <laughs> falls in, right? Yeah. yeah. And then they don't weigh a lot in your pocket. You know, they feel like they're worth, you know? <laughs> they're not really worth that much <laughs> and they feel that way. So in 1973, the United States Mint was like, hey, how about aluminum pennies? What if we were to try doing aluminum oh. pennies? Um, it was a good idea, but but... They just can't just do that on their own because Congress has to pass a law that says that. So they yeah. had to try to convince Congress that this was a good idea. So in in the, in the 1973, they made a bunch of aluminum pennies that were stamped uh, 1974 because huh. that was the year they pr- were proposing to put them into circulation. And they gave some out. They started giving some out as samples <gasps> to Congress people, U.S. Treasury uh. officials, Maybe some other people too, like, you know, they weren't really kind of keeping good track. Maybe you know, somebody who knows somebody who can get you an aluminum penny. So they gave out a bunch to try to like generate interest in the aluminum penny for various reasons. They do not go with the aluminum penny. Um, Vending machine companies were like, it's this might be a problem. It might be difficult Uh. to actually like accept these. Additionally, even uh doctors were like, you know, kids ingest coins a lot. And um it's hard to find aluminum on an X-ray. I'm not really sure how big of a problem that really would have been, but you know, that was that was one of the things that was raised, and they didn't do it. So the Mint is like, oh, Okay, oops, can you give us back those 74 pennies? And they, they they got some of them back, but they, again, they had been a little loosey-goosey about who was getting them, so they actually didn't get them all back. So right now, there are three of these that are out there that are, that are known about, or there are three surviving ones that are known about. Whoa. One only? is in the Smithsonian, only three that are known. The one is in the Smithsonian as part of their sort of numismatic, you know, collection. One of them, I believe, is still in the hands of a former member of the U.S. Capitol Police. And the story that he tells is in 1973, a congressperson accidentally dropped one in the hallway and he picked it up and he said, you want this back? And the congressperson looks back, looks at it, thinks, oh, what a dime, you know, because it's, (laughs) you know, I don't need a dime. Congressperson says, no, no, you keep it, you keep it. And he runs off because he's got somewhere to be. (gasps) Uh So this guy ends up with the aluminum penny Uh, and the other one the other one was apparently given to an employee of the Denver mint upon his retirement. And it's the only one known that stamped 1974 D for Denver. Right. Mm. And the guy took it on his retirement, given it to him at the retirement party, put it in a baggie, like a sandwich bag with some other coins that he had held onto. And the guy's son gets it, keeps it in the baggie. <gasps> Decades later, the guy's son like looks at the, Oh, I should probably try to like sell these old coins and my dad's, you know? And Finds out what it is, and this is this is in the year 2014. Heritage auctions, the big pop culture auction yeah, yeah, houses—coins, yeah, yeah. comic books, video games, all that kind of stuff. They're, he's going to auction it through Heritage, and they make a big deal about it. We're going to auction huh. a, a 1974 aluminum penny. It's going to be huge. It's probably going to go for millions of dollars to coin collectors. Right before the auction, the U.S. Mint says the government comes in. is like, ah, this is government property. You don't—we <gasps> need this back. Like, you don't get to have this. Sorry. And we don't know what happened, but we know that the owner ended up uh, settling. They worked something out. But anyway, the U.S. Mint took repossession of the 1974D aluminum Lincoln huh. scent, and they placed it, as it turned out, into the United States Bullion Depository located across <laughs> across uh, Gold Bullion Boulevard from, from Fort Knox. Now, <clears throat> the contents of Fort Knox are are also generally kind of kept a secret in terms of like the other stuff that might be in there. So... There is a reason why we know the penny is in there. And this is interesting too. And it kind of leads to another interesting fact about Fort Knox, which is that you can visit Fort Knox, the military fort, but the United States bullion depository is is not open to visitors. There's yeah, no yeah. way you don't even get close to it at all. Unless you have or unless you're like the VIP of VIPs or have a really serious <laughs> in. There have been in the last century, civilians have been inside the vault, like a reported three times. Like FDR went in there in 1943 in 1974, there was a conspiracy theory circulating that there was no more gold in Fort Knox (laughs) because nobody had been in there or seen it. There was a congressional delegation, including some members of the news media who went into the vaults to do sort of a formal inspection to see yep, that gold's still there. Yep. And that, and that was the last time 74 was the last time until 2017 Oh. What mm-hmm. happened in 2017 was, you'll never believe this, was a little bit of a governmental scandal, because then Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, mm-hmm. decided yeah. that as part of his official duties as Secretary of the Treasury, that he needed to go look at the gold. just <laughs> You know, just needed to just, do it. Yeah, yeah he he yeah. needed to go. He just needed to go down there and check it out. Now, no secretary of the treasury had felt this need since 1948, but he was like, you know what? I should really go check this out, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and my wife needs to as well. Um... And senator, and, and you know it's in Kentucky, so senator, you know Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, he he should go too, and then and then mm-hmm. the governor of Kentucky, well he, he can come along, <laughs> right? Right? Like, you party. know, I, I and,
2: should really, you know,
3: and, and, you know and this other guy from Kentucky, and this other person from the Treasury, they 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 got to go look at it too, and uh, we got to take a military plane because <laughs> I mean, how do you get to Kentucky? What we'll does just have to take this, uh, what does that take this this uh, this this Gulf Stream, you know? And so they went and they had a grand old time going down to the vault. <laughs> Getting their pictures taken in front of stacks of gold bars, writing their little names on the wall because they were there. And oh, it just so happened, coincidentally, that this trip was on August twenty first, twenty seventeen. That was the day of the total eclipse of the sun, and it just so happens that <gasps> you know that that the United States Fort Knox is basically just off the path of totality. So it was a it was turned out that it was a really good you know way of. Of viewing the eclipse, that they were like, no, 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 we're not actually interested in that. Oh, okay, sure, but it was kind of a head scratcher. Like, hmm, why, why did you go? Why were you there again? Can you explain, like, what the purpose of this trip was? Um, so people filed a Freedom of Information Act request to find out why it all happened. And oh, look, there's some pictures of 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 him and his wife watching the eclipse from Fort Knox, where they got their little eclipse glasses on and everything. Which is, I mean, to be fair, at least they were wearing I, the eclipse eye protection, glasses. Yeah. So the itinerary was actually where things get interesting because they viewed an empty vault compartment so they could get a sense of what it was like empty. And then they also took them to a separate vault compartment in which they stored all the other stuff that is not just bars of gold. And in this compartment were... All these things are actually kind of interesting. 10 1933 Double Eagle gold coins. These were never oh. officially released. These were also things that somebody ended up with, and the U.S. Mint was like, nope, <laughs> you got to give it back. <laughs> yep. 20 Sacagawea gold dollar coins. Not the not the gold-colored do- the Sacagawea dollars, but actually ones that were actually made out of gold oh. that, that had been to space. They were taken up on a NASA mission to space, Um, and those were those were in the depository, and one 1974 d aluminum penny listed (laughs) on the you know listed. This is in the Freedom of Information Act, you know, sort of dump of what happened. Incredible. So so really. The phrase should not be "I wouldn't do it for all the gold in Fort Knox." It would be "I wouldn't do it for all the gold and the single aluminum penny in the United <laughs> States Bullion Depository adjacent to Fort Knox." <laughs> so get it right.
1: Is there a valuation of that aluminum penny? Like, how much would it be worth?
3: Um, I mean, it would go. It would. It would go for millions of dollars. It's. It's hard to say because you, you get to that point where it's like. Somebody I mean it's not just like people who collect coins, right? I mean, there's also all kinds of like um you know, like hedge funds and things like that. Like some of their yeah. money is kept in in coins. So I mean, who knows what might happen if um two of those hedge funds started competing over mm-hmm. who gets to own this? It really the sky is kind of the limit.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Just if they were interested in flipping the coin, if you will, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I will not. <laughs> I <laughs> I uh <laughs> I want to see a heist film about a team breaking in to steal the penny, not to Just steal the, the gold. Penny. I want to see Locked like yeah, the, the, the yeah. one penny heist. Yeah. I want to see like, that's their mission, you know, and like little, little tiny duffel bag, carrying it away. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked
4: about the best way to get it out is swallowing it. Cause it doesn't show up on x rays. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh, you no! can't find
1: it on an X-ray. Yeah. That's
3: right. Oh my gosh. That's oh, brilliant. We're halfway there.
1: We almost got it, guys.
2: <laughs>
1: The One Penny Heist by Colin Felton. <laughs>
2: the follow-up to The Sheep Was the Edge Chase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart?
1: I want to talk about secret recipes, secret recipes, secret formulas of foods. Uh, But I'm going to start off with a quick quiz. And these are all about food products that have uh, rumored to have a very secret recipe. So get out your barnyard buzzers. Here we go. Question number one. This liqueur has been made by the Carthusian monks since 1737. Reportedly to have 130 herbs and plants and flowers in their ingredients mm-hmm, list. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm, Chris. That's the freaking name of this. Is it Frangelico? No. Yeah, there's it's a lot the, of these. in the bottle in the shape of a monk. He's married married to Mrs. Butterworth, right? No, what is it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> wait,
1: wait, wait. Um. It is also <laughs> name of a Crayola crayon color.
2: Is it? Is it chartreuse?
1: It is chartreuse, chartreuse, yellow, green. Rumors have it that only two people of that monastery know Mm. uh, all the ingredients
2: and how to make Mm -hmm. this liqueur. Have Um, you ever had it? Have you guys ever tried it? Yes.
1: Sure tastes like 130 (laughs) herbs all (laughs) together.
2: Yeah, I I can taste maybe 90 tops here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's very medicinal, let's say. Let's say. Mm, Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of medicines and pharmacies, Chemists William Henry Perrins and John Wheely Lee initially abandoned this concoction in their basement for several years. Uh, Dana. Lee and Perrins? What's the concoction? Oh. Is it Worcestershire sauce? No. It is. Nah. Yeah. How do you guys say it? Wor- I Worcestershire. say
3: Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Worcestershire.
1: Yeah. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. We're Chestershire. I, I mumble we're, we're
3: it. We're
4: Chestershire. and
1: people. <laughs> yeah, I mumble it about. too. It's fluid. So, yeah. I call it <laughs> wussy <laughs> sauce. <Cool>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is made with a bunch of different ingredients and fermented for a very long time. Hmm. So, and
2: is it? So, were they British? Is it American? Were they? Where, where is it from?
1: So the sauce is like reportedly, it's it's inspired by Asian fish sauces, Roman fish sauces, like kind of Mm. the fermented Mm. sauce. But yes, Lee and Perrin's born out of England. Mm. Um, All right. Next food item. Food historians believe that the original recipe of this company's signature breakfast food contained mashed potatoes, shortening, and fluffed egg whites.
2: Signature... Breakfast. Breakfast food. You
3: food. just tell me the company. Mashed potatoes and egg whites and
2: shortening. Short mashed potatoes, egg whites, shortening. What's the company?
3: What's
1: the Fluffed company? egg whites for fluffiness. Okay.
3: Um, oh,
2: oh, Chris. At
3: McDonald's.
1: Incorrect. What okay. food? What food item were you thinking of? Hash brown. I don't know. Is it?
4: Is it more egg oriented or potato oriented? Like what? It...
1: It's more flour oriented.
2: No.
3: Uh, is it? Is it Bisquick? Oh.
1: It is yeah. Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme oh, donuts. The that's original right, that's recipe. Right,
2: potato. Potatoes or, and eggs.
1: This was the initial original recipe from a very mm. long time ago. Um, huh. So obviously things have changed. I've read somewhere that they haven't changed their recipe for their original glazed donuts since 1945 or since mm. the 1940s. Wow. But... Initially, that
2: donut. They took was out the made. nicotine.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah.
2: S-S-S. laughs>
3: See the old Southern gentleman up by the corner said, time sure have changed, and nobody wants to eat the potato donut anymore
4: <laughs> with lead icing."
3: <laughs> so, next question:
1: the secret ingredient of this fictional drink is cough syrup.
3: Oh. Uh- <laughs> yes yes oh 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 oh, Oh. the flaming mo or the flaming Flaming,
1: homer flaming Flaming xyz (laughs) from the simpsons the secret ingredient was cough syrup next question though the ingredients are common vietnamese refugee david tran never trademarked the name of this food however oh oh well you go, go ahead colin
2: i i think that's uh sriracha sauce
1: It is sriracha Mm. sauce, sriracha sauce, the rooster, the green cap rooster sriracha sauce. Mm. He never trademarked the term sriracha, uh, so a lot of other people can use sriracha, but also sriracha is like the name of like a Thai town. So it's not, you know, it's not Mm. like something he came Mm. up with. However... He has made secretive modifications uh, on the machinery uh, to process the yeah. ingredients. So
2: I think it's the best taste for him. He's like, he didn't yeah. trademark it, but he's still the market leader anyway. He's like, Everybody yeah, whatever. Knows. Yeah, go ahead, make your yeah. own. I'm good. Yeah.
1: This is the top selling soda in Scotland for the past century. And it's made of a secret blend of 30 flavor agents and a very strong yellow and red food coloring. Surpassing Coca Cola, oh. Chris.
3: It's uh, Iron Brew.
1: It is yeah. Iron yeah. Brew. Yep. Iron Brew. The the national uh, beverage of Scotland is whiskey, and this is the number two.
3: Um, <laughs> Please
2: spell it for our listeners here in case oh. they want to. Google I believe it. it's I-R-A-B-R-U,
3: <laughs> right?
1: Iron Brew. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Another beverage. Charles Alderton came up with this formula in Texas in 1885. And it does not contain prune juice. Dana. Uh, Is it uh, Dr. Pepper? It is Dr. Pepper. No prune juice. Uh, It's just a blend, secret blend of, again, many flavor agents and essential oils. I don't know. I don't think it's prune juice. Uh, It has like a plummy something to it. Like like a raisiny quality to it. Very, very popular in its birthplace in Texas. All right. Last question on this quiz: Duke is the mascot dog, golden retriever, who often tries to um, out the secret family recipe for this brand. Oh, oh yes, oh, oh it's, <laughs> yes, it's, it's uh, yes. Okay.
3: Uh, Chris. It's uh, Bush's baked beans.
2: Yes, yeah. Bush's baked <laughs> beans. Yeah. What a what a uh, silly successful ad campaign. I, I you know what I mean? Yes, <laughs> the
1: dog trying to sell the secret family recipe for profit. <laughs>
2: Yeah. It's just very strange.
1: <laughs> so, I do want to talk about secret recipes and how companies go and protect their secret formulas yeah. and recipes and ingredients or however they process it. And growing up, we've heard a lot of myths and legends surrounding the KFC formula, mm. the Coca Cola formula. Mm-hmm. No, only two people in the company know half heard of the that. recipe. Yeah. And they weren't and they allowed to fly like fly together, <laughs> right? Exactly. <'Cause> I always <laughs> right. heard that. I was like, I don't know. It makes for a great story. I don't know if that's true or not. The secret recipe. The paper is split into many pieces and given to <laughs> different people. You know, people around the world, <laughs> and they must. It's just. It's very theatrical. But are they true? And no. the answer is, they're true-ish. Um, <laughs> so, for example, Coca Cola, the company, does actually have a rule about only two or a few executives knowing the formula Hmm. but it's not like one person knows half and the other knows half like they (laughs) they do know how to independently of each other they do know how to make coca-cola or you know they've remembered the recipe just in case if anything happens kfc their spice mix is mixed in three different facilities is that because that's just how food production works or is that like (laughs) really like trying to protect a secret and so, so much of this is marketing and and generating this feeling of mystery mm.
3: and mystique. Because in the end, it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of like colas on the market that taste pretty much like Coke, but it's not going to. It has nothing to do with like the um you know nailing the flavor exactly and everything to do with the branding, right? Yes, or, or yes. KFC. Like people aren't going to just stop if somebody if somebody had oh my, t- my chicken tastes exactly like KFC spices. People aren't gonna be like stop going to kfc <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah so so that's exactly it so say you discovered the age old initial recipe for coke
4: you know what are you yeah
2: what are you going (laughs) to do with it right (laughs) exactly
4: you have to go get some cocaine
1: first of all (laughs) make it work (laughs) obviously (laughs) ingredients have changed you know the way to process ingredients have changed the scale of production have changed that's really yeah actually a lot of companies probably display the first initial recipe somewhere like coca-cola actually does have a like a, a museum experience where they built like a big fake vault and hmm. they have like the recipe in like glass enclosures and stuff. <laughs> and like Chris yeah. said, okay, so you you've made your K, you know, you made fried chicken that tastes exactly like KFC and it's delicious. Oh, do you have the distribution
2: methods?
1: <laughs> yeah, do you right, have the mass right. production methods? Do you have the brand recognition <laughs> of
2: Coke? Totally.
1: And and to Dana's point, in Maywood, New Jersey, the city of Maywood uh, stands one chemical plant. And that is the only place currently that has the possesses the necessary permits from the DEA and the government to import cola leaves from Peru, remove the cocaine from the leaves. And the cocaine free extract is exclusively sold to Coca-Cola company.
4: I didn't actually know that they still put co- cola leaves in it.
1: Yes, cola leaf extract, cocaine-free cola leaves extract. So if you know, good luck getting your hands on that. You know, it's already hard enough to get some of the chemicals in these things. <laughs> co- cocaine-free cola leaf extract is, is really extra hard.
0: Hmm. Yeah, huh. one place.
1: Hmm. But but say you do have some sort of secret formula or a great recipe for something, and you want to protect it. How are you going to go about and do that? Maybe some people are like, oh, I'll copyright it. Well, copyright doesn't really work that way. Uh, Copyright (laughs) protection, it helps protect artistic works.
3: You cannot copyright a list of ingredients. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But you can copyright a collection of recipes in a cookbook that has your, your notes, the author's notes and stories and commentary. So you're like, okay, well, I can't really copyright this recipe. Well, let's trademark it. Oh, trademark doesn't work like that. You trademarks are to protect names or brands or logos. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys remember Dominique Ansel, the bakery in New York yeah, City? They the they invented the the cronut. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: the mm-hmm. cronut name is obviously protected. You right. see mm-hmm. a little mark now. The mark. cronut. No one can call yeah. it a, a cronut. Uh, people right. call it the other stuff like a dosant right. or like. But a, you can yeah. go
2: to Safeway and buy their version of it in their bakery. Croissant because, donut. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right, yeah. Right. yeah, Yeah, yeah. There's no um, protection against somebody reverse engineering your recipe. Yes. Basically. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, let's patent. I got this recipe. I'm going to patent my recipe. Okay, well, patents is all about novelty and originality and inventing something that never really had a, a precedent before. So there have been food patents, but mostly in like the method of preparing food mm-hmm. that is really Process. revolutionary, processing. Mm-hmm. If you get a patent, that's out in the open for the public to see. So, <laughs> that's right, So right, then other right. people are gonna see all your info if you can, if you decide and can and get a patent. Uh, for your, for your secret recipe. Mm -hmm. So where does that leave us? Most companies and most people who have like secret formulas or secret recipes, they classify it as a trade secret Mm -hmm. insider knowledge that gives your business an advantage. Mm -hmm. And there usually is a monetary value assigned to it. And so that's where a lot of the protection comes from. So to enforce the secret, this is why, Maybe if you go visit Coca Cola, you know, the kitchen or whatever the labs, you have to sign NDAs. People Hmm. who work at these companies have to sign non disclosure agreements or other contracts or confidentiality agreements. And you just have to enforce it with a lot of legal paperwork. So it makes the
2: country run. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Hmm. And Dana, you got our last segment.
4: Yes. So I have a question for y'all. What do you bring with you when you go out, when you leave the house? What are the things that you always bring with you? And how do you carry those things around?
2: Wallet, (sighs) keys, phone. Mm -hmm. Those are the three. I say say it to myself in my head every time I step out the door. Wallet, keys, phone. And it's... I have my pockets
3: pre-pandemic i used to have like uh coins in my in my my pocket with my keys yeah Mm -hmm. but like you know whatever coins i was using but then we kind of like i i don't know i don't pay cash for anything anymore. (laughs) exactly it's like we we order everything and it's not like i'm going i'm not like going physically to a lot of stores and buying things in cash so now it is just keys wallet cell phone
4: i have a purse and in my purse i have Toys for my kid when we go out somewhere. <laughs> I have tissues and cough drops and sunglasses. Wow, and a bunch of mom. Oh, stuff this is in there. the
3: full mom purse now, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Where you're just like, oh, were you hungry? And like you pull a sandwich a out of there. Yeah.
0: yeah,
4: I also have like lottery tickets that I haven't turned in yet for cash. <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> I mean, people have always needed to carry stuff around, but imagine it's 200 years ago
1: Oh my! Gosh. and your clothes
4: don't have pockets. There are no purses, but you still mm. have like your wallet keys, not phone, but like your watch or your whatever that oh, you need yeah, to carry yeah. around. What do you do with it? And you're fancy. You get yourself a mega chunky fancy chain <laughs> and you just strap all of the stuff to your body. It's just dangling
2: from your body from chains. It sounds like you're describing a utility belt, almost. It yeah. sounds like in the <laughs> '90s, is.
1: where I had the chain wallet in my Janko jeans.
2: It's like that,
4: but then there's like maybe up to 20 more chains dangling from it, and there's all sorts of other stuff. Troll around town. Key- what you're saying
3: is the original keychain was actually a big chain that you strapped <laughs> to your body. Yeah. With keys on it. Okay.
4: So people, especially women, but men also, in the 17th and 20th centuries. Wore this thing called a Elaine. It means like lady of the house or lady of the castle, because oh. around that time, like the woman of the house would have all of the keys to all of the doors and the chests and the yeah. everything in the house. Like one person has it, it's her. So she has this giant janitor key ring <laughs> that she carries yeah. around all over the house. <laughs> and uh then other people were like, you know, I could use like a a big old key ring stuck to my body and. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so they're called, they're called shoddy lanes for the ring or the entire apparatus belt. It's all? the
4: whole apparatus. Okay. I was doing um. research on like Art Nouveau jewelry. And I was like, what is this octopus thing with all these chains on it? Oh, what is this I've seen about? That
2: before, I never really yeah. processed mm-hmm.
4: that. And they were like, it's a shoddy lane. And I was like, that's interesting. And then you see pictures of people and they're just like covered with. Everything. <laughs> so here's a non, non-exclusive list of the things that might be dangling from your Shady Lane. There's, okay. Your keys, watch, mirrors, scissors, perfume, mm. scent dampener comes up a lot like a the little oh vinaigrette because everybody's oh, yeah. real stinky at the time. So oh, you have that hanging oh. from it. Oh. You dampener. got pillbox, a pencil, a notebook, mm. a whistle, mm. a pocket knife, multi-tool, a magnifying glass, a paintbrush, paint set, a locket, a full on sewing kit with needles, pins, thimbles, a coin purse, charms, ironically, of a fake key to like as a nod to this was one securing and not like all of your possessions hanging from your body. <laughs> A thermometer and safety pins. And there's more. Anything you could think of.
3: <laughs> yeah, I got everything I could possibly need. The only problem is I can't physically it's 50 move anything. Like yeah. Yeah. anchored to the ground. Yeah. So
4: I, it was attached to by like the dresses had a wide belt on it. And so it would either have like a belt buckle type thing, or, like a little hook, or it's like a brooch. And it's super ornate and made of jewels. And all of the oh fanciest gosh. jewelers made their own. So it's like, you're just... So it's part status symbol. Part status. And so, yeah, so like you're jangling around and people are like, mm, a fancy lady
2: is... Oh, yeah. yeah. I hear her coming oh, a block geez. away, yeah. right.
4: Made of gold <laughs> and silver and sometimes
2: bejeweled with the beautiful sculpture. It's like a body-sized charm bracelet slash... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 on your
4: waist. <laughs> yes. And people are like, well, it made sense because the dresses didn't really have... Big, big enough pockets Pockets. to carry any any of this huge amount of stuff that you actually need, or the purses were very small. And so, you know what got rid of the shiny lanes is they invented bigger purses.
2: (laughs) 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 You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
4: They were in fashion for like two hundred years. People wore these. It wasn't a fad. It was like a normal part of everyday dress. (laughs) They had a, invented wristwatches, larger purses, oh. or like bigger pockets. And so you just had to wear all of it on your body on a chain.
2: And find excuses to use, you know, your magnifying glass and your <laughs> yeah. uh, whatever. You, <laughs> oh, uh, hang on. I've, I've, let me get this. I've got my <laughs> magnifying glass right here. All
4: right. I have a few trivia questions about keychains for y'all to just okay. round Ooh. it up. All right. Room 237 is often written on keychains related to which book or movie?
2: Colin. That is The Shining.
4: The Shining. This thing might appear in your keyring, but the name for it comes from a German phrase for spring Spring
1: Springhooken.
4: You're really close. Not the it. end is right, but not helpful for guessing the word.
1: <laughs> hmm. S- spring is jump in German, but what is...
2: Oh, what is it?
4: It's a carabiner. In German, it's a carabiner hawken,
2: a spring hook. Yeah. Oh, carabiner (laughs) hawken. Colin. (laughs) You just said carabiner hawken. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Got it.
4: Yeah. Uh, Oh, that's interesting. Last question. This smash hit keychain toy of the 90s won the Ig Nobel Prize, which is a satiric prize mm-hmm. in 1997 for diverting millions of person hours of work into the husbandry of virtual pets
1: <laughs> oh.
3: tamagotchi the tamagotchi
2: does tamagotchi mean anything in japanese chris or is it yeah like uh... little
3: little egg tamago is egg uh, oh mm-hmm. of course yes oh, oh. Yes.
1: i had one
3: me too really yeah yeah i got a first gen when i was like 16 and in high school it died while I was working a shift at the grocery store. And I had to like, <laughs> and yeah, where she is dying when you- and like yeah. yeah. Where were you when your first time ago she died? I was like <laughs> checking it was like thing was like I'm like at the grocery store and it's like beeping and I know it's dying and I'm just like, oh no, and I'm like checking somebody out. And I'm just like, uh, well, you know, That's ignore it. Yep.
1: And that's our show. Thank you guys for joining me. And thank you guys, listeners, for listening in. Hope you learned stuff about Chatelaine's, about Fort Knox, about locks and keys and secret recipes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on all podcast apps. And on our website, goodjobbrain.com. This podcast is part of Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other shows like Big Picture Science. Clover and the Explorers Podcast. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. 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 Bye.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?